Welcome to Airwave. Airwave is a conversation hosted by me, Morgan Page, where music and technology converge to tell the stories behind the artists and the architects of creativity and technology. Radio is where I first discovered electronic music in the countryside of Vermont, and music and technology provided the path forward. Airwave is an exploration of how people make their art and how technology plays an essential role in the process. The show is largely conversational, but doesn't shy away from going deep and technical in the process. The thing I love the most about music is that it's never done. Every single day I could wake up and hear something that I've never heard before. And that could be a mix trick, or it could be a production choice, or it could be a beautiful lyric or like a crazy vocal run. So like I can get inspired anywhere, anytime, and then be like, I have no idea how to do that. All right, so my guest this week on Airwave is mixing engineer Miles Walker. He's known for mixing some of the biggest pop records in history. Firework by Katy Perry, Black and Yellow by Wiz Khalifa, and also big records like Alan Walker's Faded and the entire Kygo Cloud9 album. So I love his sound. He has the super wide, expensive, huge sounding mixes. I love his technique. This is Miles Walker, so enjoy. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. It's so funny that, you know, we're Zooming right now and Skype's been around forever, but like nobody really thought about doing songwriting this way. But I've talked to so many artists that are like, yeah, it's, you know, we did a songwriting session over Zoom and I was like, I guess we could have done that right along. But, you know, it's, it's nice that no one's getting deterred from making new music, even though the challenges are, you know, substantial. It's tough. It's tough out there. But uh, people still want to make music and people still want to be inspired. So that's awesome. Yeah. And um, did, you, did you have that sort of knee-jerk reaction when the first news of this virus was happening? And like, were you, were you productive immediately or did you have like this period of time where you were adjusting and kind of grappling with it? Well, I definitely had a period of adjustment, mostly because of the studio closing down. Like yeah. with my process, you know, I don't mix on a laptop and headphones at the house. No disrespect right. to people that do. You know, that works. There's some fantastic music coming out that way. I mean, I'm in my studio now and I'm surrounded by a ton of analog outboard equipment. And this doesn't just roll over to the house, unfortunately. So when we got news that it was like a full-on shutdown, you know, I was like, okay, so now talking about that laptop and headphones, let me see what I can do. And, you know, still accommodate everything that my clients are going to need and um, figure out how long that's going to be for me and is it a viable work option and all kinds of stuff. So it was a big learning curve on my part just because my workflow was never like super mobile. Right. And uh, that in a way like shows the chinks in the armor. Do you know what I mean? Like I still love this style. And as long as it's available to me, it's going to be my top choice. I mean, I developed this over like 15 years. So it's not like I accidentally fell into this one, you know, but when something like this happens, you know, all bets are off and you just got to go with what works and you still want great sounding stuff and your clients are used to a certain sound. And like, they don't want to hear that you can't do it because you're at home. They just want it to be great. 
That's right. You know what I mean? And like, and I don't want to give them any excuses. You know what I mean? So it was a great learning opportunity for me to figure out like, how can I do some of these things that I've like developed with tools in the analog realm, in the digital realm. And like, maybe if it's not a one for one, you know, it's, it's a one and point zero percentage of it. You know what I mean? And like, we just try and get it there and still make everybody really happy. I think. Are you in a complex or you have multiple studios as a little hive of creative spots? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a commercial facility and like I have this space, but they have other ones. So, you know, with the amount of traffic when that was like, Hey, we're not doing that anymore. It was like, all right, cool. I'll take it to the house. So I packed up the essential stuff and, uh, you know, kept it moving. Still like that. So when were you allowed back in the space? Was that the the initial period you weren't allowed in the complex? It, yeah. That's right. It was the initial, like, you know, it, there was a, there was a very gray area, you know, we're in Georgia in Atlanta and, um, Famously, our governor was the last to shut down, first to reopen, really <laughs> killing it. Uh, so, and there's been no repercussions for that at all. Uh, but no, seriously, um, we didn't know how long it was going to be, I think, like everybody else. And then we were just like, all right, well, let's, let's say it's for, for six months. Like, how, you, you got to be ready to go. And, you know, we did that. But then it opened up, honestly, pretty quick back. And, um, you know, the studio itself took much more precautions than the state did, which I really appreciated that they were like limiting the number of people in everybody that was involved or that had access to the studio was in contact of like this many people are coming. It's your choice if you want to be here. So we were all really safe in that respect. And fortunately, there's been no cases or anything involved directly with the studio. So that's been like really awesome that that's been... What's up? I feel like it, it was very jarring when LA said they were going to reopen all the restaurants. None of the restaurants were ready. None of the typical service industry places. And it was, you just knew, you knew it was a bad move, but I think that yeah. there were, I don't know if it was, they were anticipating the protests or riots. I mean, it was, it's just right. so many factors coming together. Well, you know, I mean, I feel for them because it's like, who could have ever put together a plan like this, you know, especially quickly, you know, I mean, food services is like, you know, we're a, a nation of service-based economies, you know, you take them out of the way and then like people have to get back to work. People didn't even know how to cook for themselves. You know, I think for a little while they were trying to figure that out too. So there was a lot of things that people were, uh, you know, learning on the job as it were. And it was, you know, it's obviously our new reality for at least the foreseeable future. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of people that are doing it well and people that are doing it bad. I shake my head at them. So, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's a new reality you've got to adapt to. And so when you, brought this setup to your house, like a, a new modified setup. What was the kind of the kit and the software you were working with? Well, you know, I still mostly mix in Pro Tools, you know, but, um, you know, I have access to all the DAWs because when I work with my clients, the number one thing that I do as a mix engineer that I love doing is being like, just send me your session, not your stems, your session. So because of that, you know, people are like, oh, but I use Cubase. I was like, that's no problem. Oh, but I use Ableton. That's fine. You know, FL, this is all good, man. Just send it over. And that way, what I do is not only do I have all the parts, which sometimes when people make stems, they miss a part or something like that. You know, when you make a stem, you're at the mercy of whatever they render in or whatever they leave off. And they might love something that they created, but then they've heard along the way, oh, send dry stems so that the mix engineer can redo all that. I mean, if that's the request of the mix engineer, cool, but not me. You know I mean? Like people spend so much time developing their, and I don't even like calling them rough mixes. I call them reference mixes, you know, because it's what they've worked and they thought the song is like done. Maybe they never thought about getting it mixed. Maybe a label was like, oh, we got to get it mixed. But to them, this was the final product. So I want to honor 
all of those choices. And the easiest way for me to honor those choices is to see how you created them, which you can do in the session. When you send somebody a wet stem, like you got that sound, you can't really change it. You could add stuff on top of it, but you know, can't uncook toast. What'd you say? There you right. You can't like that. unburn the toast. That's right. Exactly. You know, but, um, but sometimes I can like just get the toast light brown. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can scrape off the burned part that's of the right. toast. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and that's true too. Sometimes, you know, they kind of made some decisions that might be like counter to the best possible solution, but I see what they were going for and I can regain stage it for them. So it still sounds the same and like same vibe, but it's not clipped out or crunchy. And they're like, Oh, you did an amazing job. And I was like, well, really, I just worked with what you already had. Whereas if you rendered yeah. that in, I'd be stuck. And if you took it all off, I'd be really chasing a lot of the chain to figure out why it sounded that way in the first place. So and I, feel like I like it's working with this. With stem mixing too, if if you've got somebody has a filter on the master, like some effect that they That's want, right. and then and it seems simple, like oh, I'll just put um, I'll put that same filter automation or trim automation on the stem buses. And, right, right. But, it, but even that accumulation of those sounds is gonna be a little different, right? Totally. Like just think about like bus compression. It's different if you apply it on an individual multi-track level versus if it's on that same bus. So, you know, uh, you know, I'm familiar with all those things, whether it's like master fader stuff or, or even just call it drum bus stuff. Like, you know, a lot of times when people export stems, it'll export on the true multi-track level. It depends on the DAW, but like, let's say all those drums had all the EQs in the individual stuff, but then they went to a compressor bus and that was like slammed. That's the only part you really hear. You don't hear those individual ones. So like seeing that in their setup, like the new chips that they're going over to, what's that going to mean for everybody's compatibility with like interfaces and stuff like that? I mean, if you've been around for a while, you remember the switch to the Intel processors and like that obsoleted everybody's hardware. That was a real tough pill to swallow. So like you think about that on a software level with plugins that could be coming, but hardware too. And people have spent tremendous amount of money sometimes on their converters and stuff like that. And like, they're not running out to rebuy a new version that's compatible. So remains to be seen. Do you have a rule set of like, don't upgrade for two years with the latest Mac OS or anything like that? Well, like my rule is make sure you got an old one. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I like to get out in front of the new stuff and see what it's like, but that's not the main rig. That's going to be like the test rig. You know what I mean? The one that I work on day in and day out, it's usually at least one or two behind, but I've got something new if it's only compatible with something new and I've got something super old if it's something that's only compatible with something super old. You start seeing the old ones eventually phase out after about five or six years because people buy new computers and Apple always bakes in the new OS in the new computer so you can't go backwards. So that forces people to move forward with like plug-in versions and stuff like that. And I didn't realize, I don't know, I don't know what it's like in, uh, in Georgia, but here it's seven years. You can only get the parts for that Mac for seven years in California. I think that's right too. They have their obsolete list of when they stop servicing and stuff like that. You know, I mean, people joke that like Apple makes it to where it's like right around the time it goes obsolete, the software starts running so slow anyway. And I think that's part of like the OSs. But if you run older OSs on older computers, they tend to run pretty good. Yeah. You know, if it's when you put the newer stuff on there, I think they become, they sluggish, you know what I mean? But if you can get a good five years. So, man, it, you know, it's been a while since we last caught up. Like, and I know right. there's so many huge records you've done. Uh, I was really curious personally with these records like, like Kygo and Alan Walker. Like when I think of your sound, I think of this really big, wide, expensive sounding mix. 
Oh, that's the Norwegians. They're really good at that. They they do all the work in the production. They <laughs> they like good reverbs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I do love image, though. You do bring up something that I always try and work on. And I will say, one of the things I love about analog mixing is if you take somebody's mix that they've done in the box, and I mean, no special sauce. Don't even talk about compression EQ or anything, but just breaking out through some mixer and having it hit like amplifiers and transformers, I really think you notice image. And the producers and artists, that's one of the first things they notice too. They're like, it's so wide. And like, I don't tend to add a lot of like fake stereo image, you know, like phasing and stuff like that. Sometimes maybe on like a special sound, but not on like the whole bus. And they're always like, it's so much wider. And I'm like, yeah, I wish I could take credit for it. But, you know, I feel like when it starts living more than just an internal sum, you get that. And that's one of the things that a lot of producers really, really like because their stuff sounds great, but it's just like, oh, if it could feel a little bit bigger, you know, they're making like those big, the big room stuff and, you know, like it's got to feel big and big wide stereo vocals. That's another thing. Like once it's mixed down, they're like, oh, the vocals feel so much bigger and you just have a little bit more room to get all those synths. So they're not competing right down the middle. Leave that for the drums, you know? If you're working with a lot of synths like Silent, I mean, I can picture this combo mm-hmm. being really nice of almost like cheap synths and expensive hardware app or just, and just pushing it hard. Absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of guys that I work with, like, you know, I worked with Stargate for many, many years. They love that exact juxtaposition is like maybe a new hot synth that's like, um, you know, the current one, whatever it was, whether it was Silent or, you know, any of the reFX stuff, but they love vintage synths too. And it's like, putting the two of them together, you create two different stereo images of maybe one doing that lead sound, but a different kind of pad doing a stereo width thing underneath. And they feel really good about the combination. And, you know, to me, that's kind of like the best of digital and analog with the mixing too, is like some of the recall and the precision of the digital plugins are fantastic and I would never not use them. But then like that image and also the headroom, that's another thing that I really like about analog. That's something I don't feel like getting rid of either. Are there compromises you feel like you have to make when you're, when you're going wide with these sounds, when you're achieving it with analog gear, with reverb, maybe you're adding an extra reverb that wasn't in the original production? Sure, sure. Are, are, there, are there other techniques where you're not concerned about uh, it getting summed and losing stuff in mono? I mean, I, I've read that you are less concerned with that. I, that's true. You know, like, and I mean, I probably shouldn't be, you know, uh, but th- so much stuff is broadcast now in stereo or like, you know, true stereo, fake stereo. And like, there's some really interesting things coming out now with like 360 RA and stuff like that. So like, who knows if stereo is even the final word anymore. Um, you're always going to have, you want stuff to sound great. And it's funny because like clubs so often are playing stuff in mono. You know, right. they really are. You know what I mean? And like, if you run into problems on the phase scope, I think you should address it because especially if it's a dance record and it might live in the club, like you don't want it to just disappear like a big synth that's a part of it. And one trick that I do a lot of actually is like, I do a lot of parallel compression, but not just on everything. I'll do it on like individual sounds. And if it's like a real big wide synth, I'll often parallel compress it, but the return of that parallel compression, I'll put right in the center. Hmm. So what it does is it tends to give body in the center. And that also helps when you collapse, maybe if that sound was like really out of phase, it's like, well, you do have a true mono version of it in the center, but it's really compressed. So it doesn't have the same transient. But at that point, if it's a mono broadcast of the mix anyway, you know, you're not getting the true one-to-one sound of the mix as it was, but it does help 
for that. So I do that a lot on like key synth or key melody components that I was like, ooh, if this goes away in mono, the mix is not going to be right. So I'll do a parallel squeeze down the center. Feels like something is wrong if if it, something fundamentally disappears. I mean, it's always a compromise, right? You're going to lose some volume, but right, that's it, right. If yeah. it completely gone, I mean, something. I, I it's the holy grail I'm always chasing is I want that wide and spacious, and then in mono it sounds perfect. And it's always, it's still a mystery to me because every song is different in a different key, different tempo, different samples. So the, the challenge never ends, right? It, it just takes that one manufacturer that wants their synth to be bigger than everybody else. So they widen it a little more. And then the next manufacturer hears it and they're like, we got to go bigger. And then like all of a sudden there's nothing left in the middle. And if somebody picks that sound as the main melody of the hook, when it dumps down, it's like, there's no melody anymore. So you just have to think about yeah. how it's functioning in the song and make the choices around that. If it's some backup pad that's not really that important, I might just leave it alone. But if it's a, you know, the winner, as I like to call it in each section, like whatever sound is the winner, you got to make sure that's represented in mono, I think. Yeah. And I feel like with these really wide sounds, I've only recently thought of it like you're creating two different universes. You have like your mono compatible version of a lead, right? your, your, your super wide version and... You're finding that balance. It's like the MS balance almost where oh yeah, sure. inside where where you're you need both. You don't want it to be only mono, because then you're you're losing some of that right. ear candy. Uh, but it's it's like you have to craft these two separate universes that they, they do work together, but you're covering all your bases. Some of the most challenging things I've found in that space right now, and this is like more of a new trend, is like with bass sense. Like, I mean, it was never a conversation that bass had to be stereo before. You know what I mean? Like right. back the old SE1s and like, as like the down the middle, 808, down the middle. But now you're getting these bass patches that are really wide and they sound great, but it's like taking up a tremendous amount of stereo information. So if you try and mono it down to help, you know, it collapse and feel good, it feels like a totally different part. Like, I mean, it doesn't even feel like an EQ change. It's like you just reprogrammed the patch. Right. So, you know, when you look at the arrangement, it's real easy to gravitate towards those as a producer. But like, you got to be careful that if you've got that going the whole song, you're just not leaving a lot of space for other stuff, you know? Yeah, I feel like if, you, if it's Brazilian bass where the, the mm -hmm. bass is the lead, it's everything. Right. And you can get away with that, yeah. you know, in that kind of arrangement, like those tunes, they tend to leave space and like the rest of the arrangement is like percussion and it's like stuff in much higher frequencies. So you can move it around, but you know, big synth driven stuff. If it's that bass plus that synth plus that lead synth, there's just nowhere for a vocal to live. You know, you might as well be making instrumental music at that point because like you're never going to be able to have like a cool lush vocal background pad. You just have to look at the arrangement. And, you know, songwriters have to take care of that too. I think when they are writing the vocal arrangements that's going to go on top of these tracks because so many times nowadays producers will produce a track, songwriters will then write to the track. It's not always done in the same time. And maybe they're not in the same space via remote or whatever. So they can't always have that conversation of like, listen, I like that baseline, but the one you picked is so wide, I can't do this cool vocal pad I had. Can you replace it with a thinner bass? So they just start writing on top of it. And then like everybody's competing for space. When you get to work with the producer right there in the moment in the songwriting, sometimes you can avoid that. But again, sometimes they just want to keep it moving. So it's 50-50, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not right or wrong to do it one way or the other. It's just, you got to be mindful of the final product. It is interesting too. And, and with those, those Brazilian records where it's all, it's not just, I mean, maybe the sub is centered, but the low mids, there's this mm -hmm. whole, I've seen that with my own productions too, where it's like, 
between the sub and and the regular bass, like the in the low mids, there's all the stuff you've got to kind of fill that frequency range. And it's so wide with those Brazilian records. They they get that, and I'm guessing it's mainly Nexus and Serum. I see that a lot. The, the Serum one has a lot of them. You know what I mean? I, that's the one I've been seeing the most of and stuff like that. So, yeah. But I mean, they're all over. When you're getting all the the stems and the sessions from from guys like Kygo and Alan Walker, uh, you're you're adding a lot of transient. I, f- I can feel these the pluckiness come out and the presence. Uh, what's your go-to? Like, would you reach towards things like transient designers? Are you? Is it more parallel compression? What do you like? No, for for the pluckiness, it's the opposite of parallel compression. I find that that like thickens it up and makes sounds like you know round and full. But if I'm trying to add pluckiness, you know, it's usually something like a transient designer. Like I have a hardware one, and I think it's really great. I mean, the plug-in ones sound really good, but there's something about like the analog realm of like the transient can just get pushed so much further. So sometimes it's that, you know, not always in parallel, but like you can really exaggerate it. You know, um, some of the plug mods one though, the SPL one is pretty good and it's got a wet dry feature, which is kind of cool. So you can kind of like overdo it and then pull it back, which is nice for like, you know, keeping it all linear phase and stuff like that. I like. I tend to like that. You're always uh, chasing that, you know, avoiding that, hitting that ceiling. You know, when you put the transient oh, designers yeah. on, it's like, oh, now it's peaking. So, is it better, or did I just make the mix uh, put more, you know, voltage into the mix? That's certainly one of the things of where analog wins because there's kind of no peak in analog, you know. And if you're yeah. doing really, really aggressive uh, sound sculpting in the analog form, you're not really going to worry about that peak. Where I will say, props though to the 32-bit architecture. Like I feel like you've been able to get a lot more headroom in plugins now if you're running 32-bit sessions, the 32-bit float. Whereas like back before that, you know, the 48-point or 24-bit, whatever, you could hear the plugins breaking up real bad. Yeah. But there's some manufacturers have really embraced the uh, higher bit depth internally with the summing. So you can push it a little bit harder, but you still are stuck at that resolution on the final bus. So like you, and you're still coming out to faders. So you're going to have to reckon it somewhere with a limiter or wherever else, but not in analog. You don't, you just turn that thing up. If if you're future proofing all these sessions, would you bounce everything 32 bit stems or, or 24 bit? I used to be like, oh, what does it matter? But like, I actually can see the value in 32-bit float now, especially if you've done aggressive like um, summing within. Like if it's just one sound by itself, you know, it's probably like whatever. But if it's like a drum bus and that drum bus was slammed and those plugins were functionally like almost clipping, you know, to export that drum bus as a 24-bit, you're going to run into some of the harshness of that. But it is a 32-bit float file, you could then bring it back with all the transient and all the, you know, top bit depth that wasn't functionally crunchy. So even though it's more space. Yeah, exactly. I was like, even though it's more space, I kind of am for that. That being said, I still am 44.1 though. I haven't seen a lot of point in working with, you know, what is largely program-based music going to like 88.2 and stuff like that. I could get it for like acoustical music where you have a lot of natural transients to preserve. But if it's all from a synth generator, I'm like, we're pretty good at 44 myself, you know, I think. But That's good to hear that because I've always been like, oh man, am I missing? Like, should I be doing? But what rig are you running that's going to process, you know, 60 tracks? Yeah, 60, man. You should see some of the stuff I'm getting, especially once you put the vocals on it. I mean, you're hundreds of tracks. I was like, what computer could run this at 192? You know, like... Like you need a server uh, farm like uh, Junkie XL has or something, but you're running like Vienna strings. (laughs) I heard a long, long time ago when like 
you know, it came out Nathaniel Kunkel was running a MRI machine just for like the data because his file sizes were so big and like hard drives weren't like that big yet. And I was like, man, that's crazy. I was like, nope, that's way too much effort. I was like, if I can't keep it all in one place on one machine, it's not worth it to me. Yeah. There's enough to juggle and it's crazy. I'll get yeah. sessions where I have, I have collabs and I'll get the sessions in. I'll have to do the same thing, buy any missing plugins and where we're collabing and they've already mixed the record to a point where I'm adding. So I have to kind of go backwards, add in some new production, add my touch to it, but everything's got OTT on it. Uh, oh, like, like two or three versions of it, and, like, and using it for it's cool creative effect. And then OTTs on the master. So I'm like, I don't even know what that's doing to it. And then <laughs> like, it's hard to know if it's not your, if you didn't start the record um, mm-hmm. to work backwards from that. So I kind of, and stuff is peaking in Ableton, like plus 12. Right. So, and I always, the, the thing I always do is I'm always juggling, like, do I try to work that down and, and stop the peaks? But if I do, I lose the flavor of the workflow. Well, th- that's another reason why I always ask for the sessions because people, in my opinion, have come really aggressive with master bus stuff now. And, you know, you nailed it with the OTT. That's the one that I see the most because it's free. And it's not that it's a bad sounding plugin, but it's a multi-band plugin. The thing about needing your final reference loud. I get it. We all need a loud reference, but I feel like while the song is still getting worked on until it is maybe the final production or final, final mix, you'd be so much better suited to just use wideband limiters and even a couple of them to get it nice and loud because as soon as you hit that multiband, okay, like you said, if you back off of it or change it anyway, you're almost changing the internal mix because the way it pushes and pulls, you know, uh, the high end or, or pushes and pulls the low end based on the arrangement, it's going to change the, the fader blends of all of it right along. And it becomes like, I got to remix the record to then mix the record. So right. it's definitely a challenge, you know, and the multiband stuff is one thing that I try and, you know, urge people to like, unless you know, this is like it for the mix, maybe save that for mastering. And, you know, you can make up loudness in other ways that like, it'd be really easy to shut off a wideband limiter and still have headroom and recreate, you know, develop the rest of the mix and or production. Because you bring up a really good point that happens a lot, even on records that I'm mixing. They're like, oh, this sounds amazing. Great. We're all done. Now send it to so-and-so because they're going to produce on top of it. I was like, wait, this is in the final mix, but you never know what the story on a record is going to be. So having that ability to still make it mobile and flexible, I think is important because people like to collab all the way down the line with the process now. And, you know, it's just a new way of working, you know, used to really bum me out, but now I understand it is. And I try and ask that question up front. Like you think we might add in another vocalist or are you guys going to redo the drums just so I can get an idea of what space I want to leave for them to be creative. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be able to keep that enough space. Cause it's like, I don't want to mess with that sauce that they have with the original version. Uh, It's got to be, it's got to be faithful. Yeah. Yeah. That's super huge. I mean, like I think as just as a mixer, because, you know, I'm not a producer or a creator like on that level, you really have to honor the fact that like that sauce got there before you were ever going to be part of the conversation. And for you to ignore that is really arrogant as a mixer. Like you should honor all the choices that were already there and make them better, not be like, oh, I don't like the way that sounds. Let me take that off. I mean, that's unless they come to you with that approach, which nobody really does anymore. I think you want to honor all the hard work that people did up to that point and just like take it to the next level as opposed to be like, I wouldn't have done that. But you know, I'm never in the room when it was getting created. Yeah. And it'd be easy to undo it. Like I feel like- if you, the thing I used to try was I would try to mix records conservatively and it would 
you could lose a lot of the mojo if you're like, well, let's just make sure nothing's clipping at any stage versus saying, let's just keep it from clipping on the master or, or the right. stem buses or something like that. So what do you do? Like when you, a lot of your clients are asking for loudness and yeah, there's sure. so many different layered approaches to loudness. What, uh, what's your go-to, what are some of your go-to methods? Well, I always start with a conversation of like, what's the story on this for mastering later? Because if it is going to truthfully get mastered, I'm going to work in a way that no matter what we do, I deliver back to them as reference mixes, the actual stereo mix is still in a place where once I hit print, mastering can properly you know, get these last few bits of loudness that we were chasing. I basically only do it like that additional loudness post the mix like the mix bus level so that it can be removed and mastering can do its job. Now, if they're like, yo, mastering is not in the budget or whatever, I can push things a little bit further because I know that functionally this is the master and, yeah. you know, do what I got to do. Like I just harped on, don't do multiband compression. I still feel that way just for myself because it makes it really hard to control the individual elements when you have a multiband thing on your master going wild. It's like, well, why am I turning up all my high end and I don't hear it? And you look and your multiband's pushing it right back down. So I still try and do like wide band limiting, you know? Yeah. So that way, like I understand when it's like, oh, it sounds like it's flattening out. It's flattening out across all frequencies. So I can even it back out and stuff like that. But, you know, a combination of limiters, there's some really good software limiters that sound really great. Uh, I mean, fab filter stuff has always sounded great, but the real trick is if you just... Uh, punch up the oversample if your computer can hang to like 4x or 8x, you can push it pretty hard and it's still just like a one wideband limiter and it keeps a lot of the transient and nuance that's actually in there. So you'll have a series of, we you, you do use like one limiter, just knock out the early peaks and then. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Before the compressor doing, or. Doing, uh, if, if it needs compression, like actually, like I said, because I do go through some compressors in the analog realm. So a lot of that gets my RMS nice and high without like right. totally flattening out like the super, super peaks. So that just gets printed into the final mix too. But for those like last, last bits of digital zero max, you know, and maybe, you know, doing that kind of stuff, I'll, I'll go with like one of those. The invisible limiter generation yeah. two is pretty good. The AOM. Yeah. I don't like the first gen. It's not invisible at all. But the second gen is actually sounds pretty good. And you know, you can get some good loudness with that too, I think. But I do help the RMS by getting it analog and then using uh, a combination of like VCA and optical compressors. Yeah. Cool. So I always think it's so interesting with, you know, at least in my area of dance music where you stuff just has to have this fullness and Luffs doesn't always give you a good reference for like maybe it thinks the data is loud or sure. it's the, the Nyquist curve feels loud, but there's something, there's some other factor that's missing from these plugins and these meters where I'll, I'll play, I'll be playing in a DJ set and it's just, it's not hitting. It's either not balanced or it's not saturated or excited, but it's, it's not hitting in the, the spectrum in the right way. And then Lofts doesn't cover it. I couldn't agree more. You know, I know that that caught on is like with the one that everybody asks about, but I'm like, man, go RMS. You know, like I feel like RMS is so much more an accurate representation of the energy that's in a song. And, you know, like the arrangement can trick Luffs, just like you said. Like it's a few things in the production that's like tricking the numbers and then it's like not hitting or not loud. But if you got something, the seven RMS, 
that joker's loud. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know what it is. So I tend to like look at those metrics a lot more than Luffs. And I know there's all the things going on with like, what are the DSPs doing after it? You know, like Spotify kind of has this weird algorithm. And, you know, then there's the prep for all the different social medias. Like it does a dither down and stuff like that. So it's a very tricky one. And like, you want to be aware of all of them, but like usually it's all you can do is like aim for the one format that you know is true. And to me, that's like a full wave quality, you know, like that, that's what, I mean, you would hope a lot of DJs are going to play that version, but you never know. I mean, they might be pulling up title and hopefully doing at least the 24 bit one's on title, you know, I don't know. You know I mean? Like you just got to ask DJs what they're playing with because those are the ones that I trust more than anybody else, you know? Yeah. Because someone's got iTunes, who knows if they got that sound enhancer and sound check on. And it's like, I can't really trust that. But DJs who play it live, they're like, something's not right. I'm like, okay, that's a real answer that I need to know, you know, because they're seeing in the true working environments where it matters the most. I wouldn't see, and I don't expect it to change anytime soon. Like, I'll just do a quiet master for the club and, and mm-hmm. the DSP and the mixer will figure it out. Like maybe someday, but uh, it always, it's always interesting. Cause I was in the past, I've been like, do you submit multiple versions? One for club, one for streaming. You could, but it's kind of chasing your tail. Like, I don't know, maybe leave a little room. I agree. I agree with you completely. It's like a moving target, but do you, you know what I mean? And I've had this conversation with mastering engineers, you know, a lot of times, and there's a great mastering engineer I work with that he does prepare different masters off of the same mix. And he does like take into account those things of like, you know, general loudness and all that kind of stuff. And it's more work for him, which I hate, but it's also like, if somebody really cares enough to like look at each format and want to deliver the best possible version, we can get it there for them. You know, the yeah. bummer is the secretness around it. Like the secretivity of Spotify is like, they don't exactly tell you what they're doing, but anybody right. who's uploaded something is like, something changed. So like, that's frustrating when you know something's happening, but it's not always consistently the same thing. And, you know, I think, I understand that Spotify is its own format. Apple Music is its other format. But like, if they would just be a little bit more open to the engineering community about like, here's what we're going to do your stuff. And this is why our file format is the way it is. Uh, we would have the ability to make the choice to deliver into it or just roll the dice on the algorithm that they're going to put across it. But for them to just not tell you what's happening and you don't really know, it's kind of a double whammy because then it's like, well, you make one correction for Spotify, but then now Apple Music sounds bad. So you can't preview it, right? There's no you way you can't to, preview. To... There's absolutely no preview. I I do know people that are so concerned with uh, the Spotify is they put it up under another name and it's a private link and they just <laughs> listen to it and then they're like, okay, that's good, and then put it up under their real name. And I'm like, that's so much work, you know, and like it's ridiculous. So it's a it's a frustrating thing, and I just wish these formats would like just get more of a dialogue going, you know, because like I don't mind. Well, I wish they wouldn't do it, actually. I got a lot of love for Tidal because they put the full-on wave up there. 24-bit, no no anything. You know what I mean? It's only the ones that are dithering it down to either an MP3 or an ACC or whatever that are like putting some kind of sauce on it that you don't always know what it is. Seems like Instagram will aggressively clamp down. Instagram is horrible. That one is like the worst. Yeah, that's the worst one ever. And like... I, uh, the mastering engineer I work with, he has a master for Instagram format that he wow. will deliver in because he is like functionally cracked the code and like not that anybody told them what they're doing. He's just done his own research and stuff like that. So like I said, it's, a, it's, it's the new format. It's how people are enjoying music, TikTok and all that stuff. So like I would want it to sound great on that format. 
but I, I just have to know what you're going to change in order for me to give you the best deliverable. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that, like, so, I mean, you've, you've had these big mix downs for Wiz Khalifa, Katy Perry, all over the map. Uh, but when you have these newer up and coming artists that are mixing their own records and we touched on some of the common issues, but are there go-to problems, typical problems that keep repeating themselves and don't fix themselves in terms of their workflow, their, how they structure their sessions, how they approach EQing things like high passing. What do you, what do you see the most? I mean, you know, you see all kinds and you know, like some people it's been great with like having resources like this podcast and Pensado's place and some like, you know, digital platforms to talk about engineering specifically, people can kind of like pull back the curtain a little bit. There's always been like a cool shine on production and stuff like that, but thinking about the mixing portion and the recording portion, and I really can't stress enough how important the recording aspect of it is because a lot of people keep being like, oh, this mixer does all this stuff. And it's like, listen, you can really only take something so far. So if you love what I do. I love what a great recording engineer does. And, you know, everybody's like, how do you become a good mixer? Oh, it's very easy. Become a great recording engineer right. first. Because like when you understand how to capture a sound the best way, then you know what to do with the sound when someone gives it to you. If you've like literally like birthed the sound, you know how to send it to college. But if you just get a sound that someone gave you and you have no idea where it came from, you don't always know where to go. You can make it sound good, but you maybe don't know all the directions it can live and how it all works inside of the production. You just constantly try and make every single sound sound good, but that doesn't always make a good mix. If right. all the sounds sound good, that's not necessarily a great mix approach. But when you spend time recording, you see it all getting put together and you're like, ooh, this really works. This really works with vocals, this amount of filter or, you know, this kind of high end or, you know, other things like proximity effect on a microphone, like all kinds of techniques you just start understanding so that when you get parts later, you're like, all right, the recording did this and here's how I used to fix that in the recording. Let's see what that does in the mix. And sure enough, those end up being really great choices for honoring what's there the best way possible. Yeah, I feel like it's so easy for producers to I call it fear layering. So they, oh, they yeah. just layer. <laughs> it, it isn't good. I'm like, this is okay. I'm going to do one more Nexus patch and do another patch. Right. And before you know it, you've got this swamp of sounds, and you try to fix that swamp with EQing or some sort of automation. Uh, I find myself in the same boat, and it's so tricky. Like, if if you get a mix with too many layers, do you start by right. knocking off those stems or or mm. band passing them? What do you like to do? You know, that's always tricky because like I said, you want to honor what's there. And like, even if they did the fear layering, love that term, by the way, you should put yeah. that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the sound that they got to as the final. Do you know what I mean? Like they were like, like, even if it created some phasing and like actually is thinner than if you take one mm -hmm. of them out, if they wanted it thicker, they actually already had it thicker. So I got to assume that that's where they wanted it to be. So typically what I'll do is I'll route those together and then start making choices on that group. Now, sometimes it's so like crazy. There's like horrible phase problems. Yeah. Sometimes at that point, I might start taking a few out and seeing what they feel. But typically I'll like EQ and maybe compress around that group to see if I can improve the general feel of that group. And, um, you know, about the only difference on that sometimes is like with phasing and a kick 
because you get the fear layering too sometimes in like kicks and stuff like yeah. that kicks have gotten better like drum sounds in general have gotten better it used to be hard to get really good drum sounds unless you were like a really seasoned producer back on like NPCs and stuff like that and you had somebody's kit but now there's like great sounding drums available so you don't get as much drum layering but you definitely do like you said with the synths and the problems create created are the same you know like those pads and the, yeah, when they have those redundant layers and, and right. i always feel like you can't just it's not as simple as just uh band passing them into chunks of the spectrum where you're like cool this is my top i mean it's voicing it, it doesn't yeah right because sometimes the phase between the high one and the low one is what actually makes the group sound great you know what i mean like yeah. that and you never know so that's why i always try and treat it as a whole group so that if i am doing any phase shift from eq it's doing it uniformly across all the sounds whereas if you start eqing individual ones you've totally changed the phase relationship between these four sounds and the sum total is now a whole different sound that like is not what they intended at all. So I definitely try and just process it as a group and work that way if I can, for yeah. sure. So I try to mute different combinations of tracks and see how mm -hmm. it feels at the production before I'm getting to that final version. But it is funny where you're like, I want to have a more minimal drop, but I can't, I, I don't, I can't unmute these things. That's the, the trap of the fear layering. <laughs> the irony of songwriting is, you know, the drop in dance music is the biggest synth production, right? But isn't that also where the vocal of the hook is supposed to really take off? So, you know, you go from like one mono lead vocal for the verse and the B and then like the hook comes in and they're like singing 14 stacks, but that's also where 14 synths came in. And it's just like, you can't have loud without quiet somewhere else. So sometimes right. it's about figuring out what the arrangement of the vocal is against those synths and seeing like who's really the star of the show right there. Because if it's a dumb kind of chainy vocal part, you actually could get away with like not that big a vocal on the hook and like give the synth their moment. You know, sometimes the arrangement takes care of that. You know, you often like mentioned the stuff with Kygo, his stuff was very good at that where the hook would actually often be a breakdown, but then it was like the post hook was the big, you know, tropical pluck synth thing. So both areas got their moment. Right, they have to take turns almost, like call and response. Exactly. That's exactly right, you know, and that's good songwriting, you know, good, and good production. Whether it happened all in one space or, you know, looked at after the case, great. But a lot of that doesn't, is less about the mixing and more like it's just working together. So as a mixer, you got to look at like, did they nail the arrangement? And if the answer is yes, it's going to mix itself. If the answer is no, that's when you got to start looking at the relationships between the parts and be like, how can I pick the winner and help them feel strong in this section, but make sure what played the background here gets its chance somewhere else in the song. Yeah. I think it, it probably for most producers, it's counterintuitive. You think, Oh, I'll keep stacking things and it'll get louder and bigger when the volume could be going down. And like a lot of times I'll, I'll be getting my kicks together. I'll have top kicks I'll have the main kick. That's the, the beef of it. But I'm like, is the top kick adding bite or is it, Phasing. I mean, you, you can trim it down sure. to these tiny things and the top kick can make the whole, if you get it right and the phase right. is right, it can make the whole percussion section. But and like, if you can't hear it, Sometimes with those arrangements, if someone's been really careful and thoughtful, like you're talking about, like with the top kick, a trick can be like, if they've just had the kick going through ever, something like the top kick, maybe just save that for the hook where right. there there's less phase coherency anyway, because it's a onslaught of sounds but it feels a little different and that's all that it takes. It just needs to feel a little different from section to section to create a special moment for the kick or special moment for the whole percussion section. So sometimes just the arrangement, like you talk about muting stuff, that is when I think muting works the best 
is when you can help it like it's in in the verse, but not in the B section or whatever it is. And you have to kind of play around with that arrangement, but giving different spaces to the song arrangement, you know, that, that, that helps a lot. I think. It seems like the key with, with all of mixing feels like you're just spreading the energy out and it has to be in, in these micro chunks of time. Like nothing, you can't have everything firing all at once. Or you can, totally. but you can only have three elements. I want like Jack Joseph Pui's rule of three, you know? Yeah, that's right. No, I, I agree with that, you know? And like the other thing that I always think about is like, you just have to honor the song. Like if the song wanted to be like onslaught, full, everything all the time, I mean, you might be able to do a mix that gets away with that. But if a song's shape is like, you know, up and down, your mix needs to be up and down too. You know, because it's not about like having everything punchy and crispy in a really soft part of the song. That would be like, foolish you know like it's okay if there's a different eq on the same kick in the verse and in the hook like that's an okay thing if the mix calls for it a lot of times with the program music is people put one kick and it goes throughout the whole song but it's okay to treat it differently for different parts of the song if the song needs to breathe a little differently you know the, the the thought process of once you come up with the one right sound for the kick or the snare it stays the same the whole song i mean that's just not true even if right. it is the same physically produced kick it, it can move around you know and the synths too and the vocal for that matter all of it can live and move if it matches the arrangement and the sentiment of the song yeah. i think and i've seen on your a lot of your instagram posts where you do the ask me anything you talk about uh, the basics and there's sort of these yeah. lost art of the basics of panning, volume. Sure. And I think everybody forgets that, including myself. Like we forget, oh, I can I can shift the sound around. But I also get scared when I have, if it's like Nexus or you know, it's a stereo synth, like how are you going to pan that? You got to pan, you're going to go deep within and change the voicings or are you going to monkey around with panning it even though it's it's already sort of locked in in a preset? Um, well, a lot of times producers who like have that level of understanding of like synthesis, like truly like, you know, the different LFOs and stuff like that, they like the journey of building that or dissecting something that was built. For a lot of other people, it's just like, oh, this sounds too thick. Let me go to another patch. And that doesn't make right. them less of a producer if they're not into like but modular synthesis. You know, I think what's more important is what works for you and your creativity style. Some producers want to tweak it down. And when they come up with that right spacing of the synthesis, they're happy. Other guys just cycle through the presets and they're like, that's the one, let's go. And I think it's just important about keeping the energy that you need for the song to get done, whatever it is. Do you think some of these plugin companies are overcomplicating things like with Soothe and Gullfoss uh, or do you love them? What's like, where's the line of excess versus the basics? Well, it, it's funny because I do see each of those plugins differently, even though they're doing different things. Soothe actually has a good amount of control, which I yeah. love, but where I don't love Soothe or Gulfloss is on the master fader because when people use it there, it's just like I was telling you of like, it's kind of like multiband limiting where it's just like, they are basing that off of an algorithm telling it, oh, you should have less high-end. But like, if the production has a ton of high-end, why are you smashing down the high-end? You know what I mean? So I don't love them there. On a multi-track level, the Soothe particularly has some merit because like, at that point, it's just like a multi-band limiter. You know what I mean? And another really slick thing on Soothe that I love is the oversampling and the wet-dry. So you can actually fix some problems and then maybe like dial back the percentage. So like Soothe, I actually think has a lot of good merit in certain things, but Gulf Loss, man, I don't love it. 
I got to tell you, you know, and when people work into it really hard on their master, it's like you said, like an OTT type scenario where it's like, well, I can't shut it off because their whole thing falls apart, but it doesn't yeah. sound great. And I can't change anything on the way into it. So, you know, you end up like stemming it backwards in pieces and trying to work around it. So, like I said, I think it's not a great solution in some places and like mostly the master. I'm not a big fan of those for there, but yeah. Ooh, it's hard to know if, if like just a touch of those is, if it's like adding spice, <laughs> it's like just a little bit of that, a little bit of salt in the mix. Uh, also with things like, like track spacer, I love the concept of it, but I'm also a little scared. Like you're going to over-engineer your mix and oh, the vocals need to side chain to the guitar and the guitar is going to side chain to the kick and you could go nuts. Totally. You're like math engineering, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but, but I, I agree with you that I like the concept, like side chain, not, let's not even call it compression, but like, let's just call it triggering. That's a great way to create breath and movement internally in a mix. And sometimes that's really missing maybe from the performance of the vocalist, or maybe the, even the production is a little stagnant, but you give a great vocal performance Well, you can create levels of movement back and forth between these two elements, like the acoustic, the guitar and the vocalist by using things like that. But I think, you know, is it being used as an effect, like the famous dance kick side chain, you know, like that is almost a production sound, you know what I mean? Versus yeah. are you using it for just subtle movements between the two? And that's more like a performance enhancer. That would definitely be something I would only be comfortable doing aggressively if I had the conversation with the producer first. And I was like, hey man, you know, like I think there could be some movement here because that would change the feel like kind of significantly. And I would want to make sure they were comfortable with that. I would never, if they had a big synth pad that was just holding the whole time, I would never hit that quarter note duck on it right. without talking to them first because at that point I've changed their production. It's, not, it's no longer a sustaining huge pad. It's something else entirely. Yeah, you know, having the, st the stems side chain, it's always tricky because it's very easy to screw up the side chain. I mean, unless yeah. you're keeping it simple, unless the producer is just doing kick to the, everything else, right, which is pretty right, easy, right, right. but it's so easy to over side chain. And oh, yeah. I mean, I, I make that mistake definitely myself where it's like, Ooh, just dial it back and you're going to get better balance. And there's always sure. the, the creative decision, the producer, like, do you side chain the vocals? Do you do it transparently? Do you do it none at all? Cause every song right. is different, right? That's exactly right. And I mean, like, you know, another thing to consider too is, Based on people's system, I see a lot of like really aggressive sidechain choices, but they don't even understand latency compensation. So their right. sidechain that they're loving is actually hitting not on beat with the kick. And I'm like, that's kind of weird, man. You know, so like there's a lot of elements to think about. And like, you know, what is their speed with the attack and release? Like it's so many choices where you definitely want to have that conversation with them before you start unpacking that or applying that without that being their intent. So it's not yeah. something I go to as like a cleanup move. Yeah. Often. And multi-band side chaining, it's a whole other thing where Ooh. I'm always juggling that too. Like, well, you can get so much by doing less on the highs, but are you changing the shape of the highs? Are you having the side chain shorter on the highs versus longer on the lows? Or does that mess with the phase? There's all these things to juggle, right? People, people that want to start incorporating multiband sidechain, what I often recommend for them first is just apply and dynamic EQ to that same thing. Let its own 
natural performance of dynamics functionally do what could be sidechain triggered from another element. And a dynamic EQ tends to sound softer than a multiband compressor. Because with the compression, you actually are like rubbing off transients and doing volume ducking. Whereas like EQ, it's kind of like a soft change of the frequencies, especially if you give yourself like a slow attack and release. And, you know, there's some good ones that do it internally. Uh, FabFilter 3 does a great job, uh, but so does like the Sonics Dynamic EQ. Both those, if you just have a problem sound, just try some Dynamic EQ on it first and don't even worry about the sidechain. Just do it internally. And, you know, you'll be pretty happy with the results, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I guess on that note too, do you have go-to methods for managing bass where I know it's very easy for producers to just high pass the, the shit out of things and yeah. And maybe guys are doing, they're doing too steep, a, a, a high pass on stuff causing phase issues or what's on the EQ you're using, I guess, but are you, Definitely. What, what is your approach? What are some problems you see? And as you're approaching bass fullness uh, versus the unnecessary super lows, what do you, how do you approach it? Well, if they've made the decision to like do bass management from a lot of like low passing, you know, or sorry, high pass filtering, you know, like you said, that creates so much phase issues that I will look at their choices. And this is yet another reason why looking at their session is great before they just render that stem. Like, let's say they did fab filter and they just, you know, kind of put in a filter thing. Well, that's cool. But like, I could improve that by just switching the algorithm from zero latency to something like dynamic phase or linear phase. Like, so not even changing their frequency points, but just adjusting the yeah. math that functionally does it. And they're like, oh, it sounds so much better. I'm like, it's still your frequency sweep. It's still everything. But, you know, they might not know about that or it wasn't practical because they were still producing the song. So switching it to a like linear phase mode would have not allowed them to punch in a synth patch or whatever. So like you can do things in the mixing stage when you're not adding to the song. And, um, you know, that's one way is with bass management is look what they already did and try and honor that. And then, you know, yeah, look at your own stuff too that you've got like, plugins that you love. And, uh, you know, sometimes it is a combination of like the bass as it relates to the other low end instruments, whether it's the kick or something like that, or it could be just, you know, building it from the ground up again, you know, like bass is tricky, but it's obviously the foundation of the whole record. So like, it's definitely one that has to be right for everything to move forward. Do you try to represent the, the, all the octaves in the bass so that there isn't this little chasm between the sub and, and the bass? You hope the arrangement took care of that. Where if they right. picked a bass line that's just like purely sub, they have some kind of mid bass in there too that's like giving you some note or some like melody frequency that you can hear at lower levels. If they didn't, that is definitely someplace I would start doing something a little bit more aggressive, like harmonic saturation with the overtones. And like it's all in an attempt to just get a little bit more note out of it. But if the arrangement takes care of that, then you're like, okay, cool. It's just balancing the two. But yeah, but yes, is the short answer. If they only represent one portion of the frequency spectrum of the low end, it's my job to make sure the other part is at least talked about at some point in time. And with all your upward gear, are you uh, clipping stuff through there, like soft clipping to get a little extra level, a little more RMS and a little bit of distortion on the stems or how do you work? Yeah, cer certain stuff sounds great. Clipping, like uh, the transient designer almost doesn't sound good unless it is clipping. You know what I mean? Like just that yeah. one, for instance, you know what I mean? Some EQs break up really, really nice. Uh, you know, like it's, it's a, a widely known trick, but just like blowing out Neve preamps. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that level of distortion and then maybe bringing that back in in parallel or whatever. That's a great way to get 
tonality on something that's like real like singular sine wavy on a bass or something like that. Like having a parallel distorted version just blowing up through a preamp really can help out a lot of just getting like the note of that melody through. So I do stuff like that all the time, you know, and you can do it in the plugin world, some more successfully than others, but you know, definitely. There's the, what is it? The Ibanez 808, that pedal. Who is it? Some yeah. sort of saying that's like the, the secret J- weapon for uh, Jason. He uses that all Jason, the time, you know? And yeah. And, and Jason's a, I mean, like that man is like the sound of urban music right now. I mean, uh, you know, he's, defines the radio sound with those 808s and he works with a variety of producers. So like if he's telling you that's what he's doing, that's what he's doing. And that's great. You know, if you're going for that particular sound, I think that, uh, you know, each genre kind of has a calling for different things. What works over on, you know, a rap record might not be the exact same low end approach for dance because they're so much, they have like much higher, like low end 808 stuff where we have tempo to deal with. You know what I mean? They don't always have tempo the same way that we do in dance. And like when your tempo choices are different, you have to manage your bass differently if it's moving fast versus if it's just like a slow tempo and it's kind of like bouncing along. You have so much space when it's slower, right? Exactly, exactly. It's more about keeping it like more, I don't want to say pinned down, but like it has to be able to move, you know, because if it's, everything is super sustained, it's going to be a total mess, you know, at the high tempos. Yeah. Do you have any, if a song is higher tempo, is there um, a mixed approach to getting those transients to to hit better or the, these note divisions? It's going to be based on what they give you like arrangement wise. Like, is there a true, is, you know, is a true kick and a true bass and an 808 or maybe not an 808 that's kind of functioning as a bass and like looking at the, the difference between the two. I will say the faster the tempo, the more I'm prizing the kick because it's short and transient to help keep the pace versus like sustaining on long bass notes, right? That'll be like, you know, just the one or whatever like that. Right. So, the side trance kicks that are just that's like exactly pop. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Totally. Totally. So with, with all your mixing and stuff, obviously the quarantine, has it changed uh, your workflow? And like, like when you're opening up a session, what's a typical day like for you? You know, um, fortunately, I still work with my assistant. And so like, like I said, when sessions come in, you know, we'll look through them and, I, and you know, it, it's going to make its way back over to Pro Tools. You know, no matter what format it comes to me as, I'm going to create stems, but we always sit together and I'm like, all right, print this, take that off this, um, show me the bus like this so that that way it can all be recreated in the Pro Tools space. So we, we spend some time doing that and now we do that remotely. You know what I mean? Because now it's not something that like we used to be in the same room and he would go off to his room and I'd be right there. But now we kind of plan that a little bit differently. So when new stuff comes in and stuff that has already been set up, you know, I'll bring back across the, uh, the gear mix for like usually like the first half of the day. And then like the second half of the day when more and more people are waking up, uh, then it's like revisions of previous stuff, you know, so stuff that was done another day. And also that's good because maybe I've been mixing for like four or five hours. My ears are kind of like winding down. So it's better to just make adjustments on something that was already in a good space versus like building something up and trusting your instincts. So the timing of that works well. So that that way the next day, the song is set up from the previous day and I start all over again. So you can rotate it enough that your ears are fresh. You can, you can clear the palate. I, I think that's an important thing to try and do when you're building it up for that first pass, because you really right. want to understand all the elements in the song and like really be on fresh ears because like, it's hard to understand how the different stuff is working. If your ears are already tired, you know, like making small revisions when you already know how a song is put together. Yeah. You know, you can get away with it because it's like, you just listen and you hear that it's different. And you're good. But like when you're 
creating it for that first position of where it's going to live in the song, you want to hopefully be in a good space with that for sure. Is there any technique that you want to learn? Like you've mastered so much of this field. Are there things where you have like a list of, I want to, I want to learn this better or improve on this at this stage of being a master mix engineer? Where do you, what's next? Oh man, there's so, are you kidding me? There's so much more. (laughs) I mean, like every, I, I love the, the thing I love the most about music is that it's never done. Every single day I could wake up and hear something that I've never heard before. And that could be a mix trick or it could be a production choice or it could be a beautiful lyric or like a crazy vocal run. So like I can get inspired anywhere, anytime and then be like, I have no idea how to do that. You know, and like that's going to like totally push me back to a whole new place. And usually nowadays it's more like songwriting. Like now I'm more inspired by like really great songwriting choices I'm still inspired by like great engineering. And I think super engineering is like where I always want to live and focus my efforts because that's what I like to contribute to songs because I'm not a composer like that. But I feel like I'm mostly inspired when I hear a really great song and I'm like, man, I got to give this all my sauce. But like, I don't ever for a minute think that I'm done learning the best way to service a song. Every single time you hear a new song, it's like, man, this needs a whole new set of stuff. Like I've used all this stuff in the past, but I don't know if this is the right fit. What else, what could I try new? I think it's Dave Pensato said it. They said it's more important to sound new than it is to sound good. And I like, I kind of agree. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. It, ideally you're both, but if you can only be one, be new because I think you're exciting and different. So, you know, you mentioned earlier about like, uh, you know, young producers, like when they send in something that's wrong, I'm not going to tell them it's wrong. Okay. I'm going to see where it goes. You know what I mean? I want to, I want to see like, why did you do this? And if they create something that's like crazy and totally different, I'm going to leave it be and learn from them, you know, because I hope that I can learn from them as much as maybe they could learn from me. And are most of the the songs that are coming in, is it word of mouth or people see the credits or how does it, how does it work in the mix engineer world? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a combination of things. I'm lucky to have done enough records to where I know a lot of A&Rs and, you know, like they, even though they work with new artists constantly, they're like, we know we want it to sound a certain way when it's finally done and they want the artist to be creative, but then they just know they just want a little shine on top. So often they'll bring new projects to me. And like, I'm very fortunate that through the relationships with them, they constantly sign new acts. You know, other times it is social media has been like a fantastic tool to get people connected to me, which in the past did not exist. You know, it was like a hundred percent label work and, you know, different connections there through producers and stuff like that. But now, you know, anybody can hit me on the gram. People might be hearing me on the podcast for the first time, look up the credits. You know, it's one, one of the reasons I wanted to become more active on social was because I started seeing a new generation of people using that as credits. Cause like when I came up, yeah. I was reading the booklets on the CDs to figure out who engineered what at what studio. But if there's no booklet, there's no way to read about it. And you know, right. there's no like good online database, but if you post about it on Instagram, you will come up in a search engine and therefore people can still be connected to the records that inspired them. And, you know, like I want them to know that maybe I could do that for them. Yeah. I I love that you're open about the process and you you share, I mean, I feel like there's, it's not really secrets these days. There are, there's grease for the machine. There's ways to speed up your process and kind of reduce the suffering in the process of mixing or, or producing a record. Totally. I mean, oh man, I mean like, you know, the people that taught me were open with me. So, you know, while I might not have the exact same relationship with a follower on Instagram that I do with my assistant that I'm working with every single day, you know, if they choose to want to interface with me, I 
owe it to them to tell them everything that helped me do the records that they love because it wouldn't matter if these records came out and they weren't well received, you know, like what it sounds like. It's only matters if people love it. So when people tell you they love a record you worked on, like I'm so grateful to them for taking the time. They have infinite choice. There is so right. much music now. And if they want to spend the time to be like, yo, I love the way you, your snare drum reverb on the bridge did this. I'd be like, man, you heard that? Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm surprised <laughs> yeah. that they would do that as opposed to just skip to the next song. So if they're like, how did you do it? I'm going to tell them, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm grateful because Leslie and Phil and a lot of the guys that I learned from, they told me, you know what I mean? When I was sitting next to them, I was like, how'd you do this on that album? And they just told me. So I was like, all right, I'm going to tell everybody else too. Yeah, it's like why hoard secrets. And you know, I talked to a lot of guys that make uh, splice banks and yeah, right, like, right, like Oliver, like Vaughn. And he's he was saying like he was paranoid at first that people would take his sound, and it's like no, everyone's going to use the samples differently. Well, that's uh, right. You know why? And everyone's going to use the secrets and apply them differently. Um, We've all got the same software, you know, to some degree. But like, why does? You know, like, I mean, you have the Morgan Page pack with Waves. Do you think that makes everybody's record sound like Morgan Page? No, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, record. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, well, yeah. Yes, it does. Buy it right now. Right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you're exactly right. Like, by giving people the idea of your insight, you can hopefully help them get their feet. But like, like anything else in music, I think all of us are trying to find our way to sound like ourselves. We're not trying yeah. to sound like everybody else. But when you get ideas from everybody else, you can hopefully start looking in and be like, oh yeah, I know what I want that to mean for me. And that's why, you know, I think it's great. What do you think things are headed now? I mean, you have 40,000 songs a day coming out on Spotify. Whew, uh, love that metric, by the way. Crazy. <laughs> which is just nuts because I think people need to it know is. that. Like I didn't know that yeah. until recently that it was that bad. Or I think it's, there's also a lot of, there's so much good music coming out. Yeah that it's not so much of like good versus bad. It's like you're saying, defining yourself, being doing something differently, right. defining your brand. And now that you have to represent yourself on social media and represent your brand differently, it can't just mm -hmm. be like invisible music. I think, and I hate that this is the case because my contribution is sound and sonics. You know, like I like, that's where I'm going to help you. That's where I know what I can do for you. But with new artists, I'm like, what's your rollout like? You know, I, I think it's a very important part of the conversation to be like, how are you going to get this out to people? Because being like, yeah, I'm just going to put it out. is like, that's not enough. Even if it's a smash, like even if it's a true drop dead, amazing piece of music, that's not enough if you can't also, you know, get some good interviews and maybe get... Uh, some good playlists and also maybe get a TikTok theme going and also, you know, get a placement on a TV show. I think people need to think about where the song wants to get out to the people and have that in mind while, maybe not while it's getting written because people should still create from just a total space of like creativity. But once you've got that, then it is important to start thinking about the next thing. And, you know, like, I'm not a business guy, I'm not a manager, but like, I like interfacing with managers to ask them, like, you know, what playlist are you guys going for? What record do you want this to sit next to on a playlist? Because that's going to start to dictate decisions too. Now, don't get me wrong. I can't stand the idea of producing or mixing for a playlist. That is horrible. But you just need to be mindful of how it's going to get out to the people and have that game plan kind of like in your sights the whole way through. And, you know, there's new creative options. With, with dance music, it's interesting because it's very easy to get stuck into a box of it's got to bubble up organically. Like you can't just go to yep. pop radio. Like it's got to no, go through course. the channels 
got to get mm-hmm. Sirius XM play. It's got to go through the like eight stations that define the record success in the That's US. Right. Yeah. You know? Beatport, you know, and like, you know. And then each country has to sort of, at least with Europe, it feels like you have to, especially with those Kygo records or things where they start in the home country and like Norway picks it up and then Sweden and then the UK gets on board and then the rest of Europe. There's a very specific sort of world domination pattern that has to happen. And if it doesn't play out in that piecemeal way, it doesn't happen. Everything, everybody thinks it's like all at once. But it's, oh yeah, uh, it's it's yeah. not. That, one of the big records I did, um, uh, cheerleader for Omi, Felix's yeah. version, you know, the one that was like number one everywhere. But what was interesting about that record is it was serviced with an alternate mix. And that's and it was doing well, but it would not break the big markets because the vocal was a little unclear. So like they wanted to kind of like repackage the mix and like get one that would work on pop radio. So you know we we got one together and it's great. It's the one that is that you hear and you know and it's really fantastic. But it's like you said, it takes longer than you think. People are like oh yeah that record came out of nowhere. I was like no man that record was out for like a year. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, yeah. it it really can happen a lot of different ways. Or you know conversely to that you come up with a stupid Instagram challenge and your song's number one next week. So like, you know, there's no right or wrong way anymore. But if you have an idea, that's important. I think that's what it's really getting at. It's like, sometimes you got to go the slow methodical build through each of the things. Sometimes you got to have a challenge on Instagram. Sometimes you got to have a crazy TikTok meme. You know, like sometimes it's a great video sync. It's on a movie. But as long as you have an idea of how you want to get it out there, you know that you're not just throwing it out in the dark and hoping people get a chance to hear it. Because it almost feels like a lottery, doesn't it? Like, oh, I mean, it does. That, it really does. That's a that great way John to describe record. it. It's like, it oh. seems, it's like having a plan is like having more tickets to the lottery, it feels like, or having, yeah. you know, and collaborating with somebody, getting a co-sign with people with good reach. I mean, it's still no guarantee. Uh, uh, agreed. You're right. It's like, it's still, you can do all that and just totally brick on a fantastic record. And like, it's not your fault. Like that was, an, that would be another thing I would tell people is like, don't get discouraged if you did it right. Just really take what you learned about why it didn't work. And it might be the song, but if it's not the song, it could have just been the, the rollout plan because you can have a great yeah. song and a bad rollout and it doesn't go. And people are like, oh, maybe the song wasn't good. Maybe not. You know what I mean? Because usually if it's a great song, those are the ones that kind of will come back around later. You know, like Happy, Happy by Pharrell yeah. wasn't number one for over a year later because it ended up in the Despicable Me soundtrack. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that's what the final push for that one to become a world and a fantastic video that happened then. The song was serviced a year prior, you know, top. 200 maybe you know just kind of like whatever but then with the plan to pivot it around out of here so like yeah. you know don't don't give up on a great record either I, that's another thing that i think people don't do anymore is if a record is truly great they're like oh quick on to the next one and i'm like yeah way too fine. fast you know yeah exactly that's right i was like, like one you didn't week. really give it a shot but you know they're so concerned with the first week numbers and it's just like that can be bought that can be faked you know like there's a lot of different things of like true successful records. So like if you have a plan, stick to it and like really try and give it its comeuppance, I would yeah. say, you know. I feel like these records are either they're like super calculated major label like resource heavy and a lot There's of those the fail- you don't hear about the failures, you hear about the survival stories, the ones that make it. But then you have was it the St. John record or that that guy from Kazakhstan that remixed the the track that went viral on TikTok. And I remember he did this guy did like a spec remix. The story yeah. was that he, he messaged the guy on Instagram. The guy blew him off, the artist, the original artist. 
And the song, wow. it's just so random. He's just this random guy that makes, you know, almost like Brazilian bass sounding stuff in Kazakhstan. And the song has it, 500 million plays. I think if we've learned anything this year, it's that nothing is guaranteed. So like, you know, even if it sounds like a long shot, it's still worth exploring as long as you're learning from it. You know what I mean? You know when you're truly wasting your time, but you also know when you're trying something out and don't get scared to try something out. I guess that'd be the, you know, thing I would want people to like not get deterred about right away. Yeah, I think it, get used to the resistance, get used to some friction sure. in, the, in the career yeah. cycle. Yeah, it, it's good for you. You know, what I mean, like if, if if it just lands in your lap, you're not going to know how lucky you are that it's there. You know, if it took you a long time to get your first hit, you're going to appreciate that hit. And, yeah. you, know, you know, you're going to appreciate the people that helped you get there. You know, and that's a good and those are good qualities because those will hopefully lead to a nice long career, even if it took you a while to get there. Yeah. And I think there's this misperception of people think it's one tipping point, one singular event, and then it's right off into the sunset after that. But it's right. What's your next, what's your second and third hit? Sustaining totally. success. Uh, nobody thinks about that. They just think a record deal might be the goal, which is oh, a terrible goal. <laughs> record deals are less relevant than they've ever been before. You know, hits are always relevant, but the deal surrounding them is not as what it used to be. You know what I mean? Like the goal should be able to make music full time. That should be right. the goal. And if you can do that successfully and get it out to the people and cover your bases, you've already realize the dream. It's just how much more of it do you want to reach with other people? That's all it is. You know yeah. what I mean? You're yeah, already you can there. tear it out. So you, you can do it full time, right. maybe afford a modest house. Yeah. Uh, and then, and that that's not the end goal. The material wealth is not the end goal. Like you got to want to do your work every day and love it. Right? Totally. Like fall, fall in love with the process. Well, I always said that's when I'll stop. You know, I, I know for sure the day I'll stop making records is the day where I don't love making records. You know, when this is like, I have to do this to get paid today, I'll just stop. You know, like... You but. know that mixer who did... There was a guy, Mike, that did all the Cascade records. And he was this incredible mixer. And he had that... He was like vintage Cascade, that sound of... Like 2000 right, yeah. Cascade. Yeah, what a, great, had this what a great sound. Super elaborate setup. And he would do all this crazy stuff, busting the vocals out, just stacking them, like doing that Brower method of sending things out to like six right. compressors. And then right. one day he just was like, I'm done. And I don't know what happened. God bless him. You know what I mean? Like if in his mind, he went out on top, that's great. Cause you know, yeah. it's not, you know, everybody has a different path. So like, you know, that could have been his top, you know, Cascade still had more to offer, but like he might've just been like, I've done what I needed to do in music and yeah. it's no longer fun and challenging. I'm out. And then, you know, good for him for helping you know, Cascade get that signature sound for so long. Appreciate him stepping out of the way because I got to mix the last few Cascade records, so I'm yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. You did the so, Coldest Stone. What, what other? Yeah. yeah. What's what are your recent projects like? What kind of stuff? Oh, it's, he, the, we did one with Megan Trainer. I can't remember oh, right. what that one was called. Mm -hmm. That was great. Um, yeah. Oh, I should look it up. But yeah, it's great to great to see him. So I like that you have the audio on your page that you actually like. I think most mixers don't even think like maybe I should put my not just the list of the names, but the actual music, the playlists. <laughs> a lot of oh, guys man. don't do that. It's like, come on. I, you know, well, the thing that's funny is like, I don't generally love playlists because I'm a little bit old school and I, I like to honor uh, an artist's entire body work, whether I right. did it or not. You know what I mean? Like they didn't spend all that time making 12 records for you to only listen to the hit next to somebody else's hit that an algorithm put next to each other. It's like, man, they worked really hard on 12 records. Listen to those 12 records. But yeah. you know, I know that's kind of a dead format. So like, I'm going to stop high horse in that. But uh, I, I just, that's one of the reasons why I don't really tend to use that as much too, is I just like to direct it back to the artist's entire body of work and, you know, tell you which ones I did. But like, 
check out their whole work, man. Cause like nobody is out there making a record like, oh, I made a really good one and now I got to do 11 space fillers. Like they don't think that, you know what I mean? Right. So I don't want to reflect their work like they did that. I want to be like, honor all of them, you know, the hit and the not hit. Of course, people are going to like the one that speaks to them the most and that's yeah. okay. But check it out. Try to get their point of view because they're telling a big story that they couldn't tell in just one song. And hopefully you can get more ideas of what they were thinking about. Cool. All right, man. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got, uh, you got work to do. You're busy oh, guy. man. So, uh, this is great to catch up and, and to talk tech. We got to nerd out a little bit. So it's great. It'll, likewise, I was like, I hope it's okay, man, because we got pretty nerdy there on some multi-band oh, yeah. side chain. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, I, I can actually hear your view count going down. Yes, they're leaving. That's <laughs> if you're still right here now. now that's right. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. My interview with Miles Walker, legendary mixing engineer. We definitely went deep into the technical details as always. And I loved hearing his approach to workflow how he approaches getting the actual sessions from the artists, not just, and really being able to reach those reference mixes and bring them to whole new heights. So it's cool to hear how he expands things with analog gear to get a little more stereo width, um, how he approaches that process to make the records really shine uh, even before mastering. So mixing is such a crucial part of the process and he is one of the best. So you've heard it in his records for Kygo and Wiz Khalifa and Katy Perry and Cascade. So hopefully you picked up some good takeaways from that. Uh, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Airwave. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more.